Okay, thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Sandy and I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. Um, I have been in the fellowship 42 years. I am maintaining a 130 pound weight loss for 37 years. Um, excuse me, 36, I've been absent for 37. Um, I actually lost a little bit of more weight earlier, earlier, and then I gained in those years because I'm now 74 years old. And I was such a youngster when I came in. Um, I get really nervous about these things. I haven't done this a lot in a while. So, uh, and I have never done, this is only like my fourth Zoom experience. So you'll bear with me. I spent the whole day trying to get the coloring right, trying to figure out how I could get the um, reflection off my glasses. And you know what? It doesn't matter at all. So I started life uh, as an Air Force brat and, uh, you know, got to move every three years. And, and there were some uh, really nice things about that. And the weight started, you know, I, I mean, I have pictures, of course, not a lot of them because it was expensive then, but you know, at six years old and seven years old, and I, I was just a little thin little girl. And then my baby sister was born. And then the next picture I have is of me sitting, um, holding her in my lap. And I was this plump little girl. And I, I really couldn't tell you what happened. You know, I was, I was young, but it was the beginning of my consistent weight gain. So by the time I was in like fifth grade was when I started, or no, earlier, third, fourth, anywhere in there, was when I was really getting teased at school. And so that was the days when I talked about, I always wished the fairy godmother would come. And I wanted the first wish would be that I could be thin. And, you know, wishing and hoping didn't do it. And my mother, you know, um, was, they were stumped, you know, she'd say, I'll give you a dollar a pound if you'll lose weight, but I didn't know how, and I was eating like the rest of the family, so I didn't get it, but then, you know, later I realized, yes, there were, there were times that I was eating, nobody else was, but it just continued like that, and uh, by the time I hit uh, middle school, you know, I was already well over 200 pounds, uh, I graduated high school at a probably, you know, 235 or 40 pounds. And uh, I, I'll see if I can do this very well. Um, this is my wedding picture. I'm sorry about the glare. And then um, this is my daughter's wedding picture. And there I am. And uh, it was lovely. It was a few years after that. Uh, my daughter uh, also is a member of Overeaters Anonymous. She told me she's perfectly fine. And the funny thing was that she uh, joined in Denmark. She married a Dane. And when she told me that they had OA in Denmark and she had a sponsor and everything, I was like, wow, it really is global. And uh, she lost a total of 50 pounds. And uh, so anyway, I... I dug out my books and uh, man, they're well-worn. I guess I really did use them a lot. But there's a, this little book is Bill Sees It, which is AA literature. And I wanna say that 
when I came into OA, we didn't have any books. We had a few pamphlets and that was all. So the AA Big Book and um, any of the others, like as Bill sees it, those were the books we had until OA began to publish. And they worked for us. We didn't know any better because that's what we had. But I happened to get a hold of this book and, and uh, I was uh, looking up things to prepare to speak. And this amazed me because this is from Bill W., one of the founders. It's page 100, but he says, the forgotten mountain. He goes, when I was a child, I acquired some of the traits that had a lot to do with my insatiable craving for alcohol. I was brought up in a little town in Vermont under the shadow of Mount Aeolus. An early recollection is that of looking up at that vast and mysterious mountain, wondering whether it meant Oh, what it meant and whether I would ever climb that high. But I was presently distracted by my aunt, who, as a fourth grade present, birthday present, made me a plate of fudge. For the next 35 years, I pursued the fudge of life and quite forgot about the mountain. <laughs> and uh, it was just so amazing that he used that analogy. And he ended up with, when self-indulgence is less than ruinous, we have a milder word for it. We call it taking our comfort. And we invented the term comfort food. I'm sure we did. And now everybody talks about comfort foods. But anyway, that, that was, those were tough years. Um, I was the only one of my family that was overweight. And by the time I was a teenager, uh, my dad, began being really cruel to my mom and I about our weight. So that made life kind of hard. And you know, the way that works is you have these emotions, you're sad, you're really upset. The only thing I knew to do was to eat. And when my dad was really mean to me and yelled at me and I would go to my room, within the hour or two, my mom would come in, she would bring me some dessert or something to eat. And she knew that that was how we felt better in that house. So I went to Overeaters Anonymous, I mean, excuse me, Weight Watchers one time because I wanted to try to get pregnant and have my first baby. And the doctor said, you can't, you can't get pregnant at 270 pounds. It won't be very healthy. So I want you to join uh, Weight Watchers and lose 100 pounds. And I said, okay, I will. And I left there and I drove right through a fast food place and got a bag of food. And I remember sitting and crying and eating and crying and eating. But see, we don't tell, you know, I couldn't be honest and say, I can't do this because I didn't understand powerlessness. If he said, go and do that, then I must be able. And that was the, what no one else got was how powerless we really are over the compulsion. I was as a child and I was as an adult. Well, I lost some weight, got pregnant, had my first baby, gained it all back, had my second baby at 278. That was rough. Well, I went to the doctor because I wanted to try to have baby number three and get a girl. And I said, look, can I get some kind of a weight loss surgery, which 
that many years ago was, you know, a bypass of some kind. And he said, the Na oh, I was Navy wife by then, going to a Navy hospital. Hold on, I'm dry. He said, we don't do that. I said, well, how about diet pills? I've seen them advertised in, in medical journals. And he goes, don't do that either. He said, either go to Weight Watchers or Overeaters Anonymous. And I knew what Weight Watchers was, but it cost money. And when he said Overeaters Anonymous, I'd never heard of it ever. And I'd even lived in Southern California. I was now in Whidbey Island, Washington. But, you know, they used to joke about, boy, we were really good at the anonymous part. Nobody knew we existed. A lot of people still don't. Anyway, so I went to my first meeting and uh, one of many hundreds of meetings I went to then. It was really great, but, you know, up a lot of steps at the top, your chest is heaving, but I got in. And when they started to talk, you know, those meetings where, you know, someone tells their story and you said, are you sure your dad's name isn't Ed? Because boy, do we have parallel lives growing up in military homes. And, you know, that was my saving grace because my husband was more than happy to stay home with the kids and I could go to meetings and I went to two or three a week. I found a babysitter for when he had duty so that I could go to meetings. And I got a sponsor and began to work the steps like we all do. And uh, it was quite life-changing and none of it was necessarily easy. Um, I had to make amends, you know, because I did a fourth step and the, the hardest one was um, my dad, who was always so mean to me, but there still were things that I had to make amends to him. And this AA um, friend I had said, Sandy, do not say you're sorry to an alcoholic, which my dad was by then. He said, he feels so guilty already. Don't do that to him. And I said, well, what do I do? And he said, Amends means you make it better. You build a bridge to your dad, make it better. So I sent him a Father's Day card. It was hard to find one that wasn't all, you are the best, you know. And I wrote him a letter and it went like this. Dear dad, I want to thank you for being such a good dad. Thank you for not yelling at me when I wrecked your 68 Chevy. You were forgiving. And I thought of those things that, and for always keeping safe tires on my car and letting me have gas to go visit my friends. It was those kind of things. And I don't know how I received it, but, you know, it was better. And so then when I had to meet him as a 60 something year old, and now he's the 80 something year old, he hadn't changed a bit. He was still just as negative and critical and all that. But, you know, I had learned to not, not get hurt by it so much. I began to realize, you know, he is who he is, Sandy, and maybe there's some humor somewhere. And actually, really, there was. And so I found um, one of the stories I tell a lot is uh, he told me one day he wanted me to go out and change a tire in my mother's car. And I said, Dad, I can't change a tire. And he said, well, I'm going to be right there and tell you how to do it. 
And I said, well, I can't lift a tire onto the lug nuts. I'm not strong enough. He goes, well, I am, and I'm 87. And I went, prove it. And I said, give me your hand. And I had him give me the squeeze test. And he almost broke my hand. I said, okay, dad, you're right, but you can't do it. And I can't either. So, you know, I, I took the car up and the, it was the simple ways like that, that I made amends. It made him happy because he was no longer able to do those things. Um, I, I'm get, you know, I get a little nervous. So you guys have to bear with me. Um, everybody knows that about Sandy. I, I put a couple things I wanted to remember um, about the spiritual awakening is the most important part. If we don't have it, I, I don't know what happens to the rest of our program, but all the steps are leading to that. It doesn't matter how good or how bad you do them. You know, some of us do thorough 30 page four step inventories. I did one, I don't remember how many pages it was, but I, but it said, this is out of the uh, 12 steps and 12 traditions, step 12, it says, for most of us, the central factor of this spiritual awakening has been our decision to trust a higher power in every aspect of our lives. Well, I was a Christian, I was raised with the church, I knew there was a God, but did you know that I never thought to ask God, God, please help me not overeat. I only asked God to make me thin. And when I came to OA and I realized how that was a silly, you know, I mean, how incredible that was that I hadn't realized just, you know, because I didn't see the food as the problem yet. Not really. It was genetics or something. I don't Anyway, so the one, uh, one of the disciplines that I have, if you watch me, um, is I pray before every meal and it's a quiet, you know, and I take a minute or two and uh, I explain to people, you know, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to just say a prayer before I eat. You guys go ahead. And it's been interesting because somebody said um, they watched me in OA and they said, Sandy, I like how you, you put a little time between you and your food. And I said, that's exactly what it's about. Still my spirit before I eat the food and then I can, you know, be um, not so ravenous about it, I guess. And uh, so one of the best experiences I had was I, uh, began to lose weight. I got my abstinence. It took me five years from day one, you know, to actually reach my goal weight. I'd lost 150 pounds at that point. And we got transferred to Japan as a military family. And I had been there as a little baby and had been raised uh, part of my life in a Japanese American community. I was so excited. Well, I checked to see if there were any meetings in, in Tokyo and in Japan. And sure enough, there was. And I wrote the lady and said, you know, my name is Sandy. I'm going to be coming over there. And she wrote back. And, you know, she's the one that told me about the other meeting that they heard me and asked me if I'd speak at this one. And, you know, I, I was one of the first people that um, they had ever met that had lost that amount of weight and kept it off. 
And it was um, an incredible experience to do it over there. But I had to learn the same thing. Japanese people didn't understand why I wasn't eating more. And I would say I was on a diet. They didn't exactly understand. But, you know, and I, when I uh, just went to Japan in 2018 and 19, I, I would tell the people I was eating with, you know, I'm going to have a moment of silence, but you, you can eat. Don't worry about it. Sandy, 15 so, minutes. Um, okay. So um, one of the, um, the greatest joys, I think, for any of us that have been morbidly obese and suffered the pain of walking our back hurting all the time, not being able to climb steps, um, I really, really, truly got an incredible experience being able to go to Japan as a thin woman. And I cannot tell you how exciting it was to get away from the family on Saturday and get on the train and go into Tokyo and meet all the other OAers. There were maybe 10 of us from all different countries. And uh, that was when I really began to experience OAs, the fellowship that's all over the world. And actually, I, I retired three years ago. Um, I was divorced in uh, 1979 and uh, in 99, I got my job. And so I had to work for 20 years to uh, be able to uh, retire from the Department of Health. And the first thing I did was um, I went to Japan by myself for five full weeks and made my own itinerary. And I cannot tell you how many steps I climbed, many hundreds of steps. And I was always most careful going down the steps. It's usually that's the dangerous part. And, you know, we learn to ask for help in many ways. It's a really important part of, of this program. If you need help, you have to ask. So I would see some handsome, you know, guy from Italy or wherever going down the steps. And I would just ask him, excuse me, can I just hold your shoulders? We walked down and they'd always say yes, of course. But it, it's just some of the miracles of um, what life can be like in recovery. And, and that's the whole, whole part piece of it is, you know, we have a disease. We're not bad people. And I once had a speaker say it like this. She said, you may not die from it, but you will die with it because they've never cured compulsive overeating. I found these, um, it must have been as I was going through things, uh, probably at a retreat that they gave us this um, assignment to talk, write about our disease. And so um, I liked this one. She said, hi, dear friends across cyberspace. I don't really know what that is, but everybody says that and it sounds cool. This was an email. This disease is cunning baffling, powerful, and patient. It's that patient part that scares me. I have to do all the things that are suggested in order to stay sober or abstinent. Yes, I have a choice. Like the skydiver has a choice whether to pull the ripcord or not. My disease is out in the parking lot doing push-ups, getting stronger, waiting patiently. And then mine, I wrote, my disease is like a fire-breathing dragon and will devour me in a flash. 
I could not live one day knowing it could get me at any moment without the knowledge that I'm not alone. God is always available to me. Just like email, I can send a message anytime and can send it knowing it went. After that, I can relax in God's will, knowing it's the turning over that's the important part, not the reply. Don't let this disease sneak up on you without a parachute. I sure am grateful today that I'm not alone in the fight against this disease. It may be cunning, baffling, and powerful, but just like the kid whose dad can beat up your dad, my higher power is unbeatable. And, and that's how you make it. That's how you make it through all those years. Um, I wanted to talk about, um, I had a couple things. Um, in, the, then in the big book, I, I thought some of you people would get the biggest kick, but um, this is what we did in the 80s with our big book. We made these really cute covers and those are all my pens. So this is my original big book. And I put a note about a disease and that quote about you don't die from it, but with it. And it was uh, about uh, more about alcohol, alcoholism, Bill's story. And he said, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, commencing to drink after a period of sobriety or abstinence, we are in short time as bad as ever. If you're planning to stop drinking or eating, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to alcohol or food. My um, son, we just gotten back from Japan and I took him to McDonald's and my 13 year old son said, mom, if you were gonna die tomorrow, wouldn't you give all this up and, and start eating all the foods you don't eat? And I said, Brad, if I was gonna die tomorrow, probably food isn't what I'd be thinking about. And anyway, what if the doctor's diagnosis is wrong and I lived, you know? And he said, okay, mom, you're gonna be executed tomorrow. What, what's your last meal? And I know he thought I was gonna ask for something with chocolate. And I said, actually, you know, it's a Japanese meat dish, you know? And uh, he's, he, you know, it's just hard for normal kid to get that apart about ourselves. Um, these are the things that, that um, when people say, um, oh, you poor thing, you mean you can't eat that? And right here in a big book, it's um, page 181, it says, um, I, uh, I saw my friends drink and I could not. Um, I once had that same privilege. I had abused it so frightfully that it was withdrawn. And so that's where um, we used to say, I, you know, I tell people, man, I had my quota by 30, trust me. I don't need any more of that food. And uh, um, if you're still strong enough to meet the, this is, goes on. If you're still strong enough and to beat the game alone, that's your affair. It's talking about needing a higher power. But if you really and truly wanna quit drinking or overeating um, liquor or food for good and all, and sincerely feel that you must have some help, we know that we have the answer for you. It never fails. If you go about it with one half the zeal 
you have been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink or some more food. And he said, your heavenly father will never let you down. And, and I think that's one of the most important things for me. Um, I wanted to talk, uh, I, one of my favorite pages that we all kind of memorized after a while in the big book is page 449, 449. And I think most of you, uh, if you, if you don't know about it, you can read it, but it's just about acceptance. And he said, when I stopped living in the problem and began living in the answer, the problem went away. From that moment on, I have not had a single compulsion to drink. The food compulsion for me, I used to say as a child, it was the visions of sugar plums that danced in my head. Cabinets had food behind them that talked to me. The freezer knew my name. You know, normal people that are sane think you're crazy if you tell them that. But you know what? It was true. And when you realize that the cupboards are just doors, that nothing in the kitchen talks to you anymore. I used to say a one ounce something could drag 280 pounds into the kitchen. And so I learned when I got this back-to-back -back absence, which is so important to me, to go upstairs at night, don't be near the kitchen. That, that was the hardest thing to get to was a back-to-back -back abstinence without the breaking of my abstinence, the starting over. And I had a sponsor that I said, well, what, how am I gonna do that? And she Sandy, you do everything. If, if you're feeling emotional and go out for a walk, if you can't leave because kids are there, go in your laundry room yell, cry, scream. You do whatever it takes to get through that time without overeating. And you know what? You only have to do it one day at a time. Most of us are not food insecure. Many people are in this country, but I get three meals a day. So that means that after I have dinner, I know that I get a meal the next day. So if I go to a restaurant and I eat some crappy food and I think, man, I'll never come here again, it doesn't matter. You know, I still know that I don't eat again until my breakfast the next day. We used to call it a 301 program, three meals a day with nothing in between one day at a time. And that's what I do. I weigh my food. I measure my food. I have one of those lovely bento plates that the Japanese have that you go in your restaurant and my food is all in little sections and and I enjoy my food because we it's important that we eat the things we like that are abstinent foods for us and that we enjoy our food that's no one says that you have to eat things that you hate because you might enjoy it too much so here's the important part of 449 he said and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation 
as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my overeating, I could not stay abstinent. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. Well, one of the problems that I had. Sandy, was, that's time. Okay. Um, only one last thing um, is this is the important part. When I complain about me or about you, I'm complaining about God's handiwork. I'm saying I know better than God. So never, ever beat up on yourself. You matter just as much. Thank you. Thank you.